What is it? What is it in life that moves you? Like Jesus was moved as he watched and saw, or as he reflected on the uh, rejection of God's offer of salvation by the Jews. What is it that moves you with sadness? Maybe it's your compassion for people. Maybe it's your deep sense of loss. I guess there's lots of things that move us to a deep sadness. But I think the number one event in life that moves us to a deep sense of sadness is when someone we love dies. You might like to keep your Bible open in the passage of Amos because we look at Amos chapter 5 today. Amos is expressing a deep sense of sadness as he laments over the death of Israel. Now, Amos is not a prophet who doesn't care about what he's about those he's speaking to. He's not a Jonah. You know, Jonah went to sent to Nineveh. He gets to Nineveh, but when Nineveh repents and is saved, he's quite upset. He was hoping to sit up on the hill and enjoy the carnage. But Amos is not like that. Amos knows the reality of God's coming judgment. So did Jonah, by the way. Amos is filled with a compassion for the people that he's speaking to. If Israel doesn't listen to God's warning, they will cease to exist. This is pretty serious stuff, isn't it? And so in Amos chapter 5, Amos speaks of his great sadness over the death of Israel. But there's a problem Normally you lament over someone's death when their death is imminent or it's just happened. But Amos is lamenting and Israel doesn't feel very dead yet. There's definitely a Monty Python skit happening here. They don't even feel nearly dead. They feel pretty good, thank you very much. As you see, Israel, as we said a number of times... They've got strong leadership, they've got strong border protection and uh, they're wealthy and they've accumulated wealth and things are humming along very well. For them, it looks like God has blessed them deeply. God is certainly not about to abandon them or judge them and they are not about to die. They are in the prime of their life. Life is good. Why would Amos be driven to lament over the death of Israel? Why don't we pray and then we'll look through this passage. Our Lord and our God, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that your word will speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to put aside the distractions of life. Help us, Lord, to be changed by what you say. Lord, grow us so that we might live for your glory. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Well, Amos chapter 5, Amos is moved to lament over Israel's position because, as I've said, they are about to die, even though they're in the prime of their life. Their life is about to end, and they like to end and never to rise again. It's not just a setback that's going to, take, going to set them back a few years. God is speaking of them stopping to exist, like a animal attacked by a wild lion all that left is evidence that they once existed is the ear and a few leg bones 
that's what I talked about in previous chapters. Four chapters, in fact, Amos has said, this is so serious, no one is coming to your rescue. You need to listen. You need to do something about this. And you can see Amos here almost shocking them or trying to shock them with that reality as he laments their death that they might actually turn back to God and live. You know, Amos wants them to see how angry God is with them. He wants them to see that there is a good reason that the lion has roared. He wants them to see that it's God is not going to come to the party and rescue them once again like he has done time and time again. And he wants to shock them out of that apathy and that complacency and that false security. And he does so by reminding them of the terrible destruction God is going to bring and exposing for them one of the big causes of their problem, their false worship, their empty and false worship of Yahweh. Have a look at verse 3. Verse 3, if it's speaking about you, is not just pretty poetry, it should scare you. You'll march out to battle, let's assume you're out to defend yourself or out to attack someone, it doesn't really matter, and your army will be decimated. Only a fraction will return, one in ten. Let's take it literally, that should worry you. Death and destruction will impact every one of your families and you as a nation will have no ability to defend yourself ever again. You will be exposed to all of your enemies to the point that you as a nation will never be able to recover again. And remember, God has promised not to rescue them. When God sent Gideon in, he said, you don't need anyone, I'm with you. When God says, you don't have me, doesn't matter how many you've got, nothing good's going to happen. And God has promised not to rescue them. The judgment is about to fall in Israel and it will be comprehensive and personal and every family of Israel will be affected by a terrible tragedy and the nation will be decimated. That should shock you. Could you imagine being an Israelite at that time when Amos is proclaiming that judgment? But then Amos goes on to remind them of the graciousness of God. You know, Amos is wanting to shock them, not so he can enjoy the, the terrible carnage that's happening or the personal conflict it causes. He wants to shock them and get to their hearts so that they might change. Because whilst God's judgment is deserved, that's fair, been fairly obvious, God also offers them the opportunity to seek him and live. You see... Part of their problem is that they, they claim to be seeking God. We actually read some of that in verse 14, didn't we? So that you, the God that you think is with you will be with you. That's sort of the way he puts it in verse 14. But, but they've been seeking God, but we saw right back in 1, 1 Kings chapter 12 that they set up God of their own imagination, God of their own comfort, God who suited their agenda, which is no God at all. And so in verse 5 and 6, after being urged to go and seek God and live, Amos points out that all of the places that you would normally go to seek God are a dead set waste of time. They shouldn't have been. 
let me remind you of the history of Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. Bethel, I've talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Abraham received the covenant from God just near Bethel and went straight to be near Bethel and offer sacrifice to God. God spoke to Abraham at near Bethel, just near, just east of it. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham's, um, so Jacob had his dream there. So Abraham and Jacob had really significant encounters with Yahweh, the true and living God at Bethel. The name, the name of the place means, uh, place or house of God. Good place to go if you want to connect with Yahweh, isn't it? Gilgal, Gilgal, they went into the promised land and camped at Gilgal. Joshua chapter 4, you can read about that. They set out in conquest of the land, the land that God was giving them with assurance that they were going to win from Gilgal. God renewed his covenant with them at Gilgal and reminded them that I am your God, you are my people, I will bring you into the promised land as I've promised and Saul, as they set up their kingship, Saul is confirmed as king at Gilgal, 1 Samuel chapter 11. So Gilgal's got a good and positive history with God's people connecting with Yahweh. Seek God and live, two good places to go to, wouldn't it? You wouldn't think so when you see the way that they've been connected with God's people in the past. Beersheba, the name Beersheba means God is with you in all you do. What a great place to go to. Abraham gave it that name back in Genesis 21. Genesis 26, Isaac was there and God affirmed that he was with Isaac as well. And then Genesis 46, God speaks to Jacob, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God has affirmed at Beersheba that I am with you. My my purposes and plans, I can't get that one out, can I? Are being fulfilled, God is saying, through you. Keep going. And Amos says, don't go there. Don't go there. God is not with you. Don't go and think you can go to a place when your heart has not connected with God. Seek God and live, he says. You know, you could have spoke with God a thousand times on a particular mountain. Just going there doesn't make any difference. God is not interested in your sacrifices and your places of worship if your heart is not changed. So when Amos says, don't go to these places because God is going to destroy these places, what he's saying is, covenant's over, guys. God is abandoning his people. This is serious stuff. Don't think you can claim to be God's people and just drift along any way you want to. The land is gone. The covenant is gone. God is not with you. Don't go to these places to seek God. But we are told they should seek God, but those places are no good because what did they do at those places? They followed the God of their own imagination. They blended the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other gods. We read about that in 1 Kings chapter 12 where the first Jeroboam, Jeroboam the first, when Israel first set themselves up, did what he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted, to please himself. The God that you think is with you, Amos is saying, he's not been with you for years. That's not hard to see as we look back at the history of Israel, is it? Tell them they're dreaming and call them back to me. It should actually, if we, are, if we were Israelites and we were understanding this, that should fill us with fear. It should lead us to repentance 
What have we done? All these places of worship have been corrupted. They're regularly attended, by the way. We read about that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? They go and offer sacrifices all the time. They tithe every third, every week or every year, depending on how you read it. doesn't necessarily matter. Well, they're very religious people. They think God is with them, but guess what? He ain't. And how evidence, how, how does Amos know that he's not with them? Apart from the fact God's told him to say this stuff, how obvious is it the fact that these people claim to follow Yahweh, but actually he's not, they don't even connect with him? Well, that's what it goes on to say. There's detailed evidence that's laid out before God's people that shows them that they have no intention of following God, even though they claim to. It's all put in the negative. Let me try and put it in the positive. If they really were seeking after God and really worshipping him, then it would have made a difference to how they lived. To put it in the positive, chapter 5, verse 7, when people had gone for justice, they would have received justice, not bitterness. If Israel was interested in being obedient to God's word, it would have made a difference to the way they treated one another. Israel would have pursued righteousness in the way they lived. They would seek out ways to live so that God is honoured in their life and they would reflect the character of God to the people they lived amongst and around. Now, Israel, Amos chapter 5 verse 7 doesn't give us lots of detail about how justice turned bitter in the mouths of those who received it, but it's not hard to guess some of it. We don't even need to guess it, I don't think. I think we just need to go and read verse 10, 11 and 12. What does bitterness, bitter justice look like on the ground? Verse 10. It gives you a picture of a court system where there's no justice, but rather a court system that turns on those who, who speak the truth. You see, if Israel was really going to seek God, they would have reflected in their court systems um, a fair justice. It would have changed the way they treated with people. Now, we've just got to pause here. We'll come back to it in a moment. Because we can all of a sudden do the thinking, oh, Israel is saying that the court systems of Adelaide are not just, therefore God is going to condemn them. No, Amos is talking to the people of God, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And the people of God is not Australia. It is us. Israel is addressing the difference the word of God, sorry, Amos is addressing the difference the word of God should make in us. Now, Amos also talks about the fact that God of, of the nations is the God of the nations and he will bring everyone to account. But Amos is addressed to the people of God. So don't do that wild extrapolation. Think about us. We'll do that a little later on. Verse 11. Uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God, taxed the poor so they could build their mansions and live lives of indulging in the luxury of wine. Now, we get the idea with those taxes that those taxes are just put on the basic necessities of life whilst those with great wealth can build those mansions and enjoy those luxuries. That's what bitter justice looks like. Verse 12, they oppress the innocent and take bribes. And verse 13, you can see why. It's not actually saying this is a good idea, but what it's got to in Israel is that those people who are prudent in Israel at this time, who are not busted, keep quiet and keep their head low and hope nothing comes on them. 
You see, a matter of survival is just a matter of keeping your head down and keeping quiet. God's not applauding that. He's just saying that's what it's got to amongst God's people in Israel. And if they had been seeking after God, they would have been seeking after good, not evil. They would have been pursuing righteous living. They would have been pursuing justice and truth. They would have refused any bribes. They would have stopped any oppression of the innocent. And they would have ensured that the poor got the same justice as the rich. You see, it was very evident that these people claimed to follow Yahweh, but they didn't. And it wasn't just a matter of going to these places of worship that were corrupted. It was evident in the way that the people who claimed to follow Yahweh lived each day. Now, the way the verse is structured, there's a central part of this verse. won't go into the detail of how we know that, but anyhow, there is. Verse 8 and 9, the character of God is central to this whole thing. It's on full display. And if you get the character of God right, the rest should flow naturally from the way you live. What is God like? Well, he has power in the heavens, over the heavens. He brings light to darkness. He brings darkness to light. He controls all of creation by sending rain. If you think that you can pull it off better than God, give it a go one day. When we understand the nature of Yahweh, his awesome power as creator and sustainer of this earth, then we know he is worthwhile following. Yahweh is his name, verse 18, just in case you've forgotten. It's not Mother Nature. It's not the gods that you made into, you follow at these false places of worship. It's Yahweh. Get back to know him. But he's not just the one who controls creation. He's the one that will bring judgment to the strongest strongholds with a blinding flash. He knows about decimation. And he knows about justice. And nothing you can ever do will stop him bringing his judgment upon you. God is awesome. He is powerful. He is mighty. And if you are about seeking God, God needs to be central to that. He's not the God of our own creation. He's not a puny pretend God. He's not a God that can be ignored when it's convenient. He's not a God that can be recreated to suit what our itching ears want to hear. He is Yahweh and Israel. If you are going to have any hope in the future, you need to come back to Yahweh. It's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? That's what he's saying. And he gets back to the end of this section, verse 16 and 17, and just takes us back to what he said in verse 2 and 3. If you don't, God's going to bring complete and total judgment on you. But he does so in a way which, again, should have struck fear in the hearts of those who hear. Verse 17, God is going to pass through your midst. Now, if you're, a, if you're an Israelite... It wasn't all that long ago as you ran from Egypt that God passed over you and through everyone else. And you as a nation were formed when God passed over you and through everyone else. And God is now saying, I'm going to pass through you. You see, don't, don't be left with any, any uh, idea that you can keep ignoring Yahweh and expect to live as a nation. You may be the promised people of God. He may put you in a land. He may have rescued you time and time again. But guess what, guys? It's D-Day. 
Now, how does any of this have to do anything with us today? Um, first of all, we should have a good idea why Amos is crying out in lament. I, I don't know whether you have that same lament for God's people who've claimed to follow God and it makes not one shred of difference to the way they lived. So, uh, Israel, Amos certainly does, doesn't he? If real worship of God makes a difference to how we live, it's worthwhile ask, asking ourselves if this passage affects anything we're going to do. Remember this talking about how God's word affects the people of God now, the church. He's not talking about whether Malcolm Turnbull has a just court system. He's never going to have a just court system because it's run by sinners just like you and I. Don't worry about that. It's talking about what God's people are doing amongst themselves. Amos is not a book that we use to try and establish a Christianized society that's disconnected from the reality of the gospel. Amos is a book that flows from the gospel transforming the hearts of God's people. It's a book addressed to us. So how does Amos challenge us as a church or as Christians today? That central part of Amos's message, verse 8 and 9, reminds us of the awesome reality of God's power and might. And if we lose sight of that, I can guarantee you that God will just turn into someone who could be moulded by you to suit your, what your itching ears want to hear. So have we, have you, lost perspective of Yahweh? Have you turned him into someone who just does whatever you want him to do, that gives you whatever you want to have, someone who will just say, oh, don't worry, I know you made your best attempt now, or, or I, know, I know you did your best on the day. Well, that first memory verse that we had, that we can live as a confident hope, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse uh, 8 and 9, you can put aside all of your idols because Yahweh is bigger and better than any of them and he's more eternal than any of them. If you worship God, you can put aside the worship of anything else. And Amos is exposing the false securities of Israel's worship. They've lived with their religious practices, daily religious practices, better than any of us. Certainly, if you believe the kids' hands going up, they read their Bible more than we did. Yet God's word is not reflected in how they lived. It's not reflected in how they treat each other. Material wealth and material security, they had become their gods. What they lived for, they were prepared to sacrifice anyone to get more money, sell someone for the price of a pair of sandals. They had false security in their religious practices, but their heart was not for God. It was for themselves and for their self-indulgent lifestyles that had religious trimmings, but that's what they were. See, I think Amos does speak to us, doesn't it? It, re it reveals the danger that we can fall into. You see, if Israel had actually been listening to what God wanted, then God's character would have been reflected in the way they lived. 
And God was gracious towards Israel, wasn't he? Because we've just, let, we've just read four chapters of why God should press the smite button and here we have in chapter 5 is God saying, seek me and live. God's grace should be evident. God's grace turns justice from being justice that is bitter to justice that is good. So as people who follow Yahweh, I'm going to ask ourselves some questions. There are far too bigger questions for us to actually spend much time reflecting on now, but I have printed them off in the newsletter. You can actually read them, I'm pretty certain. Well, I think I did it, I mean, not that you can't read. <laughs> um, is, your, is your life known for the justice you pursue in the way that you love one another? Are you known as a Christian with, as someone with a desire to seek God's righteousness in the way that you live. Do you love truth? That's God's truth, not my truth or your truth. It's God's truth. And you detest those who teach truth and try and bring them down so that you no longer have to hear what God wants you to hear. As a Christian, as a, as a church that's Christian... Are we known for our generosity or are we known for our greed? They're real questions to ask, aren't they? Important questions for us to ask because if God doesn't like what he sees in Israel who claim to be God's people, he won't like the same if it's in our lives. One final question we could ask ourselves from this passage is this, are we known as people who serve others? Do we seek to love Jesus? Or are we known as people who live for their self-pleasure? There's just a few ways a passage like this should get us thinking. Now, Amos chapter 5 is not disconnected from the gospel. It's not disconnected from God's gracious activity in our lives through his son, Jesus Christ. But he was, God was just as gracious to the Israelites, wasn't he? They didn't know the name of Jesus, but they knew the character of God that saved them and continually forgave them and rescued them and established them as his people and gave them hope that was not just for them, but for eternity. And it would be a terrible tragedy if we thought we could have Jesus and treat God any way we want. We need to be people who are saved by grace and who live lives worthy of the gospel. How about I pray? Now, Lord, now, God, we pray that your word will speak to our hearts. Encourage us, rebuke us, correct us and train us in righteous living. Lord, we pray that your word will not flow in one ear and out the other. We pray that the busyness of life will not mean we just return to doing what we've always done. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.